The following podcast is brought to you by fantasy-animation.org. Each week we feature a blog post discussing some aspect of the relationship between fantasy cinema and the medium of animation. These can take the form of uh, event reviews, film reviews, book reviews, editorials or sequence analysis where you take one or two minutes of your favourite film or TV show and analyse the relationship between fantasy cinema and animation um, as displayed within your chosen extract. If you'd like to join in on the blog post, please get in contact at fantasy-animation.org. For now, enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Fantasy Animation Podcast with me Chris Holiday and me Alex Sargent. So today we are covering our first animated documentary, Waltz with Bashir, so a film from 2008 that covers the 1982 uh, Lebanon War and in particular the Shabra and Shatila massacre as part of this sort of uh, Israeli history. Um, it's really a test case for us Alex I think, it's a test case to play out some ideas with fantasy and animation to see whether or not those ideas, those mediums, those media work within a non-fiction context um, and obviously it's our first chance to think about the relationship between documentary and animation and documentary and fantasy. Yeah I think one of the things that we're always conscious on this podcast about is that fantasy and animation can are two words that can both can mean lots and lots of things to lots and lots of different people and we're keen to sort of uh, test out where these words can go and yep. can't go um, and one of the often uh, sort of counter examples we get are animated documentaries what do you do with them do they count in terms of this relationship um, so that's going to be an interesting thing to talk about so to help us solve this uh, new portion of the show which is the fantasy animation riddle um, <laughs> we're delighted to welcome uh, Bella Honus Rowe um, so Bella is a senior lecturer and program director for film studies at the University of Surrey uh, and she's the author uh, of Animated Documentary, which was the recipient of the 2015 Society for Animation Studies McLaren Lambert Award for Best Book. She's also co-edited books on the voice in documentary uh, and a recent book on, on kind of animation uh, history and theory, I guess, titled The Animation Studies Reader. Uh, and she's also the editor of a forthcoming collection on Aardman animations. Um, and finally, she spearheaded the uh, important Breaking the Glass Frame research network on women in animation. Uh, and she's written uh, a lot in this area. Uh, and the sort of the relationship between uh, national cinema animation and the focus on women in British animation and she's also working uh, currently on a research project on the visual culture of the invisible. Uh, so Bella, thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, so what we normally do and regular listeners will be will be familiar with this trope, this uh, motif of the show, um, is to re relate the film choice, in this case Waltz for Bashir, to your own personal interest. So I mentioned your work in animated documentary. Um, so I guess our first question is really how did you come to the film? What's your interest in the film and perhaps relating it back to your own work, its significance to your own work in, in animated documentary? Um, okay, so I first came to the film because uh, between 2005 and 2009 I was working on my PhD which was on animated documentary which wasn't very much written about then um, and it also there weren't very many examples of animated documentary then, or at least nowhere near as many as there are now. So I would, as you do when you're working on a PhD, you would meet people and they'd be like, what do you do? So I'm doing mm -hmm. a PhD in film studies, they'd be like, what's your PhD on? And I'd say animated documentary, and then people would inevitably look at me and go, is there such a thing? Yeah. Is that even a thing? Is that a thing? Do okay. they even exist? So I spent a long time explaining about kind of festival short films and some films that were made on television maybe connecting to things like Aardman's Creature Comforts film. 
And then while I was working on my PhD, while I was writing the thesis, this film came out, Waltz with Bashir in 2008, for which I was just massively grateful because there was a feature-length animated feature that people was getting a lot of attention at the time. It was screened at Cannes. It won uh, a Golden Globe, I think that's correct. Um, and it was very, it received a lot of critical attention. So um, there was a film that I could say, if you heard of this film that's come out, I'm writing about that. Um, and also because it was a really interesting film yeah. and it did a lot of interesting things in terms of the way I was thinking about animated documentary. And in particular, um, a chapter of my PhD that then became a chapter of my book about animation and documentary and memory and how animation can become a really useful tool for making films about the past and your own past, or at least the past of the subject of the documentary. So actually the film is, is really important for the trajectory of docu animated documentary studies, obviously that you have been at the forefront yeah. of, but you, the film comes out, you're writing about animated documentary and suddenly you have a text to latch onto, something that people have heard of and is sort yeah, of yeah. doing and it, well. And, and it also sort of came around the time that lots of other people started thinking about animated documentary, or at least there was much more interest about animated documentary. There was a conference a year later, I think it was, in Edinburgh. So it was, it felt like it was this sort of real crucible moment and the film was part of that, of sort of reigniting an interest in animated documentary and there had been some scholarship sort of at 10 years or so earlier and it all sort of like was coming to a head again or coming sort of to, uh, being enlivened again so and I think the film in part was you know played a role in that because you know it got attention so it got people interested in animated documentaries and then people started thinking about other animated documentaries and a bit of a snowball. And presumably, presumably the kind of history of animated documentary then if you're saying the scholars are writing about it um, it'll be interesting and hopefully we can get your thoughts on the film's relationship to sort of traditions of animated documentary that the animated documentary didn't begin with Waltz with Bashir mm -hmm. but as you said it becomes a kind of interesting way of thinking about perhaps some things that cinema and animation had done previously, so that's I guess that's your that's your thought that's mm. the sort of relationship to animation documentary. Um, Alex, yeah. the fantasist, what have we got? Yeah, okay. Um, well, actually, before before that, I, I wanted to jump in with my impossible question of the week early this week. This one goes to Bella. Excellent. Um, I just because I remember the movie coming out, and I can remember a lot of people going, "Have you seen this thing? It's a documentary, but it's animated," as if this was like mm. the first, like some sort of Snow White moment for animated documentaries. And I wondered, just like, it, wh why did that happen? Is it simply because the film's very powerful, that it's very well made? Was it a right place, right time moment? Because I think that. It did a lot to popularise the history of animated documentaries, certainly within a certain subset of audiences. Um, and I don't know, do, do we any speculative reasons as to why it did that? Well, why it ignited interest? Yeah. I think because it was a feature-length animated documentary that was widely commercially available. So a lot of the stuff that I was writing about that was made prior to that were short films that were only really screened publicly at film festivals, animation festivals. They were quite niche, basically. Mm. And there was some stuff that was shown on television as well, but I think it was to, for a great part to do with accessibility. It was also an animated film that was aimed at adults in the cinema, whereas, mm. and as, as you've talked about on this podcast before, you know, animation and children's entertainment are closely aligned. So it was, you know, a feature film that was accessible and aimed at adults and therefore sort of gained interest and attention. So I think that, and it's interesting that thing you say about like people going, oh, it's animated, it's yeah. a documentary. Actually, like in the film fest, in the film awards, it was not nominated in documentary categories. Mm. It was nominated in best foreign film categories. 
So the, the, I think the filmmakers talk about it being an animated documentary, but I don't know that it was necessarily yeah. marketed. That's what I was actually going to say. Was it nominated for Best Animation? Yeah. No, Did Best Foreign Language. So I've, I've got a list of, and this is taken <laughs> from, the, from the web, but as you said, it won a Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language yeah. Film, um, uh, a Caesar Award for Best Foreign Film, uh, and it looked and was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign mm. Language Film and a BAFTA Award for the Best Film Not in an English Language. Yeah. The only category it says that it was a, uh, nominated for as an animated film was an Annie Award for Best Animated Feature. So there's something really interesting, I think, about the institutional frames in which... Yeah. And we've talked informally about the book, Fantasy Animation, and where it goes in a library and how we think about archiving these texts and where we put them and how the archiving practice has shaped the way that we then go on to think about these texts. So it's interesting that a film like this doesn't appear, or, or where it appears in relation yeah. to awards. Not that awards it's tell got, the whole story, it's but... It's got three identities. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's a foreign language movie, um, yeah. it's an animation, it's a documentary, and it seems foreign language still trumps the other two in terms yeah. of yeah. anglophobic sort of Oscar ceremonies and things like that. It's interesting. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, a lot of it is to do with those awarding academies that they can be quite conservative yeah, sure, in terms sure. of... So, you know, it's... You know, there might have been challenges with it fitting into either the documentary or the animation category because of sort of inherent conservatism. Mm, yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. So if it's nestling with all, or jostling with all these um, uh, identities, fantasy, document, uh, animated, documentary, foreign language, uh, is it also a fantasy? <laughs> I guess. Well, it, it's not. A, it's not a fantasy film in terms of a genre. Obviously, it's not. It's not riffing on fantasy storytelling. Obviously, tropes. interesting. Interesting. Um, it's not. Uh, and 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 I think I think the the jury's out on whether we're going to class this as a fantasy or whether classing it as a fantasy is even the right term. But I certainly think there are there are discourse of fantasy within the film and there are interesting things surrounding um, Bella's always mentioned the, the role of memory within the movie yeah. the sort of the, 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 the um, self-conscious uh, rev, uh, discussion of subjectivity and subjective memory there's even sort of a discussion on memory and how we use our imagination almost to fill in gaps in memory and it's sort of inviting us to read the movie as this sort of imaginative uh, memory trope, right? Um, there's lots on trauma, there's lots on hallucinations, there's lots on, on dreaming, um, and there are lots of sequences in the film that deliberately um, uh, avoid any kind of, you know, represented, representational um, dialogue with, with, you know, real life, so to speak. So what it chooses to document, I think, would be an interesting conversation right. to have. But I definitely think, you know, there, there, there are ways of unpacking this movie that can involve discussing either psychological theories of fantasy or indeed fantasy is a broader trope or impulse that sort of allows us to talk about things that otherwise realist representation doesn't get us at. I don't know if, I, yeah. if Bella's now going to violently disagree with no, me. No, I, mean, I don't <laughs> violently disagree with you. I just think that... Well, it's know, on radio, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you can do whatever you want. So people um, won't see. Um, I just think it's interesting how Chris introduced the film as a film being about sort of Israeli history. Mm, yeah. And for me, it's a film, and I think lots of people who've written about this film, it's a film about memory. Mm-hmm rather than the film about that moment in history. Mm. And I think as a film about memory, it embraces the idea that memory is made up of the factual and the fantasy, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's not just kind of um, a made-up idea. I think it's sort of like an acknowledged sort of mm -hmm. idea of the psycho how yeah. psychology of memory works and how we fill in the gaps. So I think in that sense, um, while it's not sort of a fantasy film in terms of, you know, you know, uh, no Snow White or something like sure. that, or being set in an alternative world, it is a. I mean, it is engaging with the idea of fantasy, and interestingly to me, the role that fantasy plays in understanding our own past. 
So through memory. Well, there's a line in the film that's memory takes... I can't remember who says it in particular, but memory takes us where we need to go. And you could mm. take out memory and put animation. Yeah. Animation takes us where we need to go. And you could take out and put fantasy. Mm. Fantasy takes us where we need to go. So I think there is something about the collapse of, dis- of those sorts of distinctions. Or or something about the relationship between fantasy. As you say, it's not fantasy in the generic sense, but you said to me after the screening that it's fantasy in a kind of an impulse. That there are moments of fantasy yeah, sure. in the yeah. film that perhaps allow it to at least be discussed in that way. Well, I certainly think what I found interesting watching it was that there are some sequences that, that really caught this sort of, obviously we're not representing anything now, we're trying to depict um, a, a dream, uh, a dream that has taken place in reality. It's, it's that question of documenting, I guess, like what's the opening sequence with the sort of, um, with the sort of the dogs running through the street is, is documenting someone's dream in, in certain um, degrees, right? And then there are other sequences that are, are trying through rotoscope. I assume it's rotoscope, but this nope. is no. Okay, this is why I'm a fantasy guy. Uh, it looks a bit like rotoscope what, to me. What a loser! Yeah. Oh god. Oh. It's cut out, digital cut out. So what is that? So tell tell the lads in the room what that is. Well, now so, well, they're looking at each other, yeah, ganging yeah. up on me. Oh, is, oh, I'm, I'm rubbing my hands. But everyone, it's a really common mistake okay, to the yeah, point yeah. that um, the art director and the animation director correct that repeatedly in their interviews, oh, right. in their own sort of writing about the film. That it's not rotoscope; it's digital cutout animation. This sort of you know, if, so if you, well, do you want to? Well, no. I, I, my, my notes. I mean, obviously, we've talked a bit, a bit about the animation. I guess from where I'm coming from was the idea of the technique, the way that it looks, and yeah. it's very kind of graphic in lots. Mm. In, in lots of ways we might interpret that word. Um, I was interested in the use of black lines, I think, around the drawings. There's something very obviously kind of comic book about that, but we can but the, um, the put po- pressure on that. Before I, you explain to me what this, this yeah, yeah. thing that I've already you, forgotten the name of is, yeah, yeah. so clearly Ex- no, no, yeah, learned well. You can um, listen back to the podcast. There are moments where we have the sort of talking, it looks a lot more like a sort of traditional yeah. quote-unquote documentary, yeah. where we have the talking heads, we have things going on in the background that are, that, that are supposed to suggest that what we are seeing happened once, right? That this is in some way an indexical, you know, sort of Bazinian footprint on what has been seen, but then it's being Yeah, I've got, my notes on that are about, I guess, photorealism and the, the, the reference points to lens-based media. So the, the drool of the dogs at the start that gets flicked onto the camera lens. Like, I love little things like that. And the film is bookended by two moments like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the drool on the screen, if you like, or the camera's lens, and then the lens flare at the end. And the lens flare then leads into the kind of climactic sequence, which mm-hmm. is very powerful in all kinds of ways. Um, so yeah, but the, in terms of the technique, uh, it's interesting that you said that they often correct it because I was thinking about this film in relation to um, something like Waking Life or, mm-hmm. or A Scanner Darkly, so mm-hmm. films that, that use digital um, rotor, rotoscope or rotoshop. Um, but in this case, as you say, it's kind of, uh, some of it is hand-drawn, I think some of it is classic. Is that right? Or some yeah, of it there is, are a couple of bits in it that are. Yeah. But mostly it's kind of digital cutouts where yeah. bodies are fragmented into different component parts digitally and then they're moved yeah. to give the illusion of... Um, is that kind of right? Is that how you understand Yeah, I mean, I think the good if you think of it as like the analogy of doing it in 2D, like using bits of paper, that you would yeah. cut out the bits of the body and then articulate them with joints at the elbow, at the wrist or whatever, and then you move those separate parts individually to create movement. It's just doing that process, just just doing that process yeah, digitally, just just doing that process. where you separate it and you sort of move it that way. So that's how the why the animation has that slightly clunky movement yeah. at the time, which I think adds to the dreamlike. Well, mm-hmm. I've written about this how it sort of adds to the dreamlike quality of it, that sort of this sort of slightly stilted movement of the characters. There's um, something very really f- like floating. I feel floating, like it, yeah. the, the film itself seems to take the aesthetic of 
of floating in the water. Yeah. One of the powerful images of the movie. The whole film seems like it's kind of floating on. And that's one of the criticisms, I guess, in some pieces that are levelled at that digital rotoscoping where you paint over live action footage digitally, that there's a sort of slipperiness between the live action and the digital on top of it. Um, yeah. I know that I think Paul Ward and Caroline Rudd have written on a scanner darker, or certainly on Rotoshop yeah. and stuff like that. So the yeah, the whole film has that sort of looseness, but I agree, I think it's it's quite yeah. There's a fantasy to the aesthetic in, in an interesting yeah. way. And I think it's what it's I think it's partly to do with the sort of weight that it's like the characters don't have any yeah. weight or sort of any of the sort of normal squash and stretch. I think this is right that, that animated characters might normally have. Um, well I know that in certainly in a digital context and we, and we will get to talking about the film at some point but um, or the plot I should say yeah. but I, I, the idea of volume is really difficult and weight is something in CG which is and I know the, the filmmakers when they were Pixar were making The Incredibles obviously you're trying to show a group of superheroes that in some cases have superhuman strength well how do you how do you create strength and bodies that have or, or objects that are so voluminous and weighty that a character needs to be straining to when everything is wireframe and everything is virtual and so the idea of volume and weight and density and digital is something that's really yeah it's kind of sort of interesting I think um, but yeah can I just go back to something you said Alex that was I think was really interesting is the idea that for you in some sequences it was clear that they were meant to be more connected to reality than in others because I think well, yeah, I mean, that word reality is obviously slightly charged, but yeah. certainly sort of objective reality, physical reality. I'm using Bazanian terms here, yeah. right? But like. I, so I think that one of the things that I think is really interesting about the film is that the animation, so there are three different registers the film works in. There are the interviews, mm-hmm. yep. which are, which for the most part, they are, re, well, he filmed, the director, they, he filmed himself interviewing people, the real people, in most instances, not all instances. So those are reconstructed in the animation. Um, so those really happened. And then there's the memories of the past, the sure. reconstruction of the past. And then there's the fantasy sequences. Mm-hmm. But they're all animated in the same style. So there's no sort of aesthetic distinction, mm-hmm. really, between those three different registers. And that's something that the filmmakers did consciously because they didn't want to have any sense of privileging any one of those elements over the other in terms of significance, reality, mm. meaning, or any mm. of those things. I mean, there is different aesthetic difference, I think, in terms of colour palette. Yeah, and I other think the things. colours are fantastic. The colour's really yeah. important in this, especially in the repeated dream sequence. Um, but So it's interesting how you sort of glean that difference between the sort of more realistic sections. Uh, yeah, the, the, th- the three, that's very nicely articulated, because I couldn't, that's exactly it. Like, the three... Um, there's, there's, there are moments of memory which, by all means, are seeming to be. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no hallucinogenic moments. There's no moments of metamorphosis. Mm. There's no great big uh, fantasy monsters or beasts or visions coming out of anywhere. But it's obviously a someone's subjective memory. Mm. And I don't think the film is making any claim at that moment to be showing something that, that they've actually got any kind of documented evidence of other than the, the stories people are telling. But then there are the moments, as you say, in the talking heads where you've got like, you know, a child walks in the background and there's these sort of almost like real life is passing by moments that do feel like, I, I, I didn't know that, but it's nice to know that some bits were actually filmed and then they use that as well, a they, reference. They filmed the interview, I think this is right, they filmed the interviews in a studio. So like the, the sequence you're talking really? about, which is like the, the interviews with his... Um, Psychologist yes. friend Ori, I don't, I, mean, I, I don't know that they would have filmed those in his house. I think he had people interviewed in a studio for sound quality reasons. Interesting. Um, so actually, actually, even that is a 
fantasy to sort of be a bit yeah. buzzworthy about it. Yeah, and if you think about there. that sequence, you know, there is also the, you know, that you sort of get that, one of those sequences with the interview with Ori, because it's sort of morphs into a fantasy sequence where you get the superimposition of the Ferris wheel and the fairground sequence in the background when they're talking about the sort of yeah. the impressionability yeah. of memory you and how you can fabricate memory yeah. but as you said but it, it morphs into the fantasy but then as you said the visual visual register often doesn't give that away yeah. and so everything sort of slips into e into each other and so and I'm looking at the cast so as you say some of the cast are playing themselves yeah. but some people are playing real people presumably and so there are lots of yeah. registers e visually yeah. but even orally orally there yeah. are lots of different yeah. ways in which we can try and make sense and this is why the film's a riddle I think for us as yeah. trying to sit down and, and figure out how to approach it well yeah. well well to deliciously segue into talking about the sort of the mechanics of the narration <laughs> I guess I was struck by that in the opening sequence in that we got this with get this opening um, nightmare sequence yeah. of, of these sort of dogs uh, running through the street um, which is very sort of um, atmospheric and and evocative, and then the, the the camera pans up in, or I think it pans up into a bar where we get the story of the dogs and we get the whole sort of yep. plot momentum cracking in, cracking in. And I and I was interested that they did it via this sort of allusion to a camera, as if mm. like we're, we're panning up from the dogs straight to the bar. They're in the same world, they're in the same space, whilst at the same time we get the yeah. story about the dream that acknowledges that what we just saw was a dream at the same time as it being yeah. happening outside on the streets. So. Yeah. Well, I suppose writing on, on the film that's relationship to the mind and cinema as mind and how film yeah. functions as a mind or a brain because uh, in the way that you cut things together in your mind as part of a memory and you, you, you edit as you go and you create. This is why we, we, we could risk saying the thing that we always say, which is the film is about animation. I actually don't think it's about animation. I think it's about narration more than anything else and about the way of telling stories. But... Um, that the film operates as a kind of mind and you you kind of edit and absolutely there are certain moments in the film where rather than a cut they just have a really smooth camera movement through the woods or something and through these trees and now we're at a different location yeah. at a different time and everything is really connected yeah which i would not really thought about before but it's true and i can't remember how they segue into the first so the important sea dream hallucination sequence of the film of ari folman's which is his connection to what happened to him in the war and i think I can't remember how they segue to that visually, but is it through like a pan out to the sea and yeah. then we yeah. pan down onto... And the, 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 yeah. the thing about camera perspective, I think is also really interesting because the point of view of the camera in that repeated dream sequence is interesting. I, I think helps evoke the idea of it being a kind of out of body experience mm -hmm. um, because of how it switches from a third person kind of overhead view of Ari Folman and the other people in the sea with him to sort of then adopting his point of view later in the in the sequence. Yeah, well, there's something uh, in terms of the segueing. Aren't there bits where he's looking out to then what becomes the dream or something? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Trying to get an anchor point is yeah. quite difficult, as if you know, as if you're in a dream. But actually, the the role of perspective and proximity. So, the opening sequence with the dogs, you are placed closer because of the illusion of the camera, and you they have the fake. Um, construction of the lens that's mm. there and there's a sense of proximity and you're in the action and then suddenly the camera goes and goes yeah. right up and then you're in a bar that isn't isn't connected in that way and then you figure out you're in a sort of false opening frame and you're in a story and that which is a you know mm. a playful kind of technique um and then you're then the film goes through quite a series well a series of sort of structures a journey narrative effectively mm. as he tries to find out what happened and why he's forgetting things and mm. and how his memories become fabricated and then these sorts of things so then the film goes into quite a series of conversation pieces mm. really and, and uh, as he meets various people and tries to piece together 
his experience. And then we have repeated scenes, as you said, like the, so the dream sequence where they're in the water and next in the water and moving out. So it's a sort of, yeah, it jumps back and forth and it's all done very fluidly. But I've not thought about that fluidity between the kind of temporal registers of the film before. So are, are we saying that this is sort of documenting the, the, a traumatic mind struggling with memory? Is that... I'm interested well, in what I, the film's documenting. I don't think I it's documenting anything. Right. I, th I think. I think. So is it a documentary then? Well, documentaries don't just document, and I think that um, you know. So the, some one of the ways that I've written about animated documentary is the idea that animation can do something in a documentary context that live action film can't, which is that it can evoke experiences, um, you know, subjectivities, mental health issues, whatever it yeah. might be, from a first person perspective in a way that live action film can't. So I think that that's what this film is doing. I think it's working in sort of two registers in terms of animated documentary. And one of them is this evocation of the experience of forgetting, or the experience of the effect that the trauma has had on him. And so that means you know, that's to do with the remembering and the forgetting and coming to terms with his role in the, um, in the massacre mm -hmm. in the camps. So. Um, I I don't uh, I think sort of I think one of the productive things when you think about animated documentary is to get away from that idea of documentaries documenting because they don't you know, I think that sort of can be you know it can be maybe a bit too limiting when you yeah. think about what animation is doing because if you're sort of if you wedge yourself to the idea that documentary is going to only do document then you're sort of short circuiting any real conversation about animation in documentary context. Well, well unless unless we broaden what document means. Sure. That's the same thing, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I guess. I guess. My, I guess. I'm interested in like if it doesn't document anything and does all these other things as yeah. well. Why have these? I mean, maybe that's the point. Why have these sort of uh, fiction, non-fiction mm -hmm. classification? Maybe we should just call it non-fiction rather than documentary. Is this a term that's perhaps seeped in celluloid and all this sort of stuff as as a form of classification, or am I? You're just annoyed that you said rotoscoping. You're still just. I'm still annoyed. I am yeah. still annoyed about it. Yeah, I know that. you are. I can see I it in your still eyes. That, and I'm going to be annoyed about it for about 48 hours. But, we'll, we, but, but we power through the trauma of that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think there's lots of issues with the term documentary yeah. um, and what that actually means. And I mean, it's a bit like animation. Like, how do we define yeah. animation? How do we define mm. documentary? Mm -hmm. The creative treatment of actuality is the most long standing definition of documentary, which is John Grierson's yeah, definition yeah. of documentary. Creative treatment of actuality then animation fits in that sure. just yeah. as well as you know reenactments interviews archival material all the other kind of elements in the mm. documentary filmmakers toolbox um and so is documentary's responsibility just just to document things that have happened or is it to tell us things about the real world okay so mm. i mean that's another distinction that bill nichols makes in documentary is documentary is about the world and fiction film is about a world I think that's a really useful distinction to make in terms of this film because it's about the world, the world as is experienced by these people or specifically by Ari Folman, and it's about their perspective of their experience in this um, conflict. It's not about a world, it's not a made up story. Mm. And it's not. So in that sense, coming back to the fantasy you know, distinction is quite interesting because I think that's how Bill Nichols distinguishes between documentary and not documentary, which is the world as opposed to a world like Star Wars, you know, like a made-up fantasy world. Sure. Time to pause the podcast for just a moment, folks. Um, 
We at fantasy-animation.org publish weekly blog posts that highlight a certain aspect of the relationship between fantasy cinema and animation by um, a particular writer each week looking at their own interests. Absolutely. We've got uh, chances for people to publish on, on particular films, television programmes. Um, we'd love to hear from you if you uh, have a particular sequence um, from your favourite film or television programme that you want to talk about. If you've read a book on fantasy and animation, if you've been to an event, uh, a conference or even a festival. We'd love to hear from you um, if you've uh, got something to say about uh, fantasy and animation in the form of an editorial. These can be an interpretation, a reflection of an idea or concept, anything that connects up fantasy and an animation together. From creative practitioners to more philosophical readings, we'd love to hear from you. So, so examples of previous blog posts have included a range of items from um, a look at uh, Soho uh, cinema practice in uh, and the relationship between fantasy in uh, animation studios working in the London area. We've got work um, on particular studios, whether um, it's the Leica studios, whether it's the Pixar studios, whether it's the DreamWorks studios. We've got thoughts on animated uh, documentaries. We've got reviews of Captain Marvel, uh, the new Dumbo movie, um, as well as reflections on how to train your dragon and its, um, and its engagement with queer theory. Um, any kind of um, angle you want to come at this from we'd be open to hearing ideas. We don't have a deadline, we operate on a rolling submission process. All you need to do is get in contact with us on the website under the How to Contribute tab or the Contact Us tab. Um, it's easy to find and we're waiting to hear from you. So in this, so this is something interesting there then about the, 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 if documentary is the creative treatment of actuality and that animation is one of those creative tools, mm. representational mm. strategies yeah. uh, of, <laughs> nice. to, to cite a chapter <laughs> in your book, but uh, animation is a strategy to do this, then, then the film itself becomes a creative treatment of history, regardless of whether it was animation or not. If it was live action and done through dreams, it would become a subjective treatment of actuality, i.e. his experience, his personal experience of a particular event. The animation adds to that narrative because... Mm because it, it isn't of itself a creative treatment of something because animation is rhetorical. And so it works really nicely in the film that is itself about the, uh, what's the word, kind of falsity of memory or memory re reflection and the fact that both of those things can be false and unreliable. So animation fits really nicely because it's artificial. And actually that maybe feeds into the style of the film which really makes no claims to be absolutely convincing in the way that it looks. It always retains its animatedness as a way of signalling that process of reenactment. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. One of you guys said earlier about photorealism, and so I've sort of grappled. That was with that. me. Uh, that was me. I grapple with that in this film, but because I think it is sort of realistic, yeah. in that you know the people in the film, the ones that are represented to look like themselves, do you can recognise them, right? So you can see the animated Ari Fullman, and then you see a picture of him in you know, a real photograph, yeah. and you're like, oh yeah, I can see the. No, I can see that's the same person, even though his animated version is slightly better looking yes. <laughs> than his real life version. Yeah, so, just by accident, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Just yes. by accident. Um, so, you know, so yes, but it's not photorealistic in the sense no. that something like, um, I don't know, Walking with Dinosaurs, you know, something else I've written about, you know, in the sense that that was sort of trying to look like yes, filmed yes. imagery. It's not trying to look like filmed imagery. There is no pretense here that this isn't animation, and I think it really trades in that sort of graphic you know, graphic novel style. But, what, um, but then that moment where, so, and we're still on the opening, but when the, when the, the, the dog sort of flicks the drool onto mm, the, yeah, yeah. then it's weird because it's a sort of creative treatment of photorealism. Yeah, which actually, funnily enough, quite 
a lot of animated documentaries that work in this register yeah. do. So about walking with sorry, should I track into walking with dinosaurs? But no, walking no, no. with dinosaurs does that as well. So yeah, yeah. there's nothing other than it's sort of you know this this sense that a pretense that if the camera was there could have recorded this, this is what it would have looked like. And a sort of way of kind of making parity between animation and reality, or almost kind of making a claim for animation's validity as yeah. a representational strategy in documentary. And I think that's what's going on here. But, but so I've, uh, if I've, in the context of computer animated feature films, that they do that a lot as well. They kind of do mm. fake, um, and I think what it is is that photorealism is, is a term that's been described to articulate how animation and mostly digital animation can replicate lens-based media. But it doesn't tell us anything about how it's then used for political purposes, i.e. how it is used to make people laugh. Like when a character smacks into the camera lens yeah. in, in a movie like, I don't know, Monsters, Inc. or whatever, or um, How to Train Your Dragon, then we laugh at it because... DVD special features tell us that that's not how those films are made. Yeah. So photorealism tells us an aesthetic, but it doesn't tell us the kind of purpose. So here, that photorealism is being co-opted into a sort of register about the validity of yeah, animation to document history or to document something. Exactly, and it's quite covert, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that unless you're watching the film closely, you would notice that. Mm. And there are other... So there was a film um, by Brett Morgan called Chicago 10 that was released yes. a few years before this. And... Um, Use it. It's a documentary, but it uses lots of animation. It reenacts sequences of a courtroom court in yeah, a court yeah. case, and that film also uses strategy to make parity between the animated sequences and the archival footage by doing things like dressing the animated characters in the same outfits you can see them in archival footage, even though they are not footage from the same time period or the same yeah. day. So I think there are these sort of really subtle strategies that these films use that are a way of kind of implicitly making the claim for animation's validity, but unlike those examples you, you know, from the computer animation, yeah. they're not meant to be noticed no. in a way. Um, they're not like sort of you know, a gag that we're, you know, is meant to kind of take us out of the moment, no. quite the opposite. From, from my perspective, I guess well, this is sort of, I wonder if what the film does is encourage the spectator to think about this sort of um, relationship between animation um, and live action and the way in which um, animation is used as a representational base and then sometimes as an imaginative sort of um, calling card or whatever, for want of a better term. Um, for me, it sort of folds in with quite a lot of psychological theories that we sort of alluded to earlier, which are very much about sort of what, what is reality if, if it's not a split, if it's not a culmination of the raw, real, unobserved, unmediated through human consciousness mixed with human subjectivity to create something meaningful that is reality and that's quite often how fantasy is sort of seen as fantasy is a necessary condition to create a coherent picture of reality because reality unfiltered is you know um, to get all postmodern you know the real um, it's 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 you know it's trauma or it's or it's or it's not even meaning it's nothing so so in a way in a way the film's playing with different modes of meaning making and sometimes the, the sort of the, the real is pushed aside in favour of the imaginary, and sometimes the imaginary is, is folded on the top or scattered on the top like a delicious, um, I don't know, uh, icing, icing on a, sprinkles, on a, on a, a, icing on a real cake. Wow, uh, but 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 I think there are. It's deliberately trying to get you to sort of play with that seesaw, or at least I was playing with that seesaw whilst watching it. I, um, but I might just be obsessed with fantasy. You no, know. I think, but I, to me, the film is not sort of. 
mean, I think it's actually resisting that idea of kind of sprinkling reality as icing on top of it or the other way around. Because I think for me, the film is really trying to equate these three different registers of experience, of mm. subjective experience, as equally truthful, that's the word the filmmakers use, in terms of the significance of this event for these people, specifically for Ari Folman. Uh -huh. I.e., in terms of coming to, coming to terms with what that experience means for his identity, for his connection with history or whatever it is, those hallucinations are as you know his hallucination or his kind of dream sequence of the C sequence that's repeated three times um, are as meaningful as his encounters with the people through the interviews, some of whom he knows, some of whom were strangers to him until he did the interviews, uh, are as meaningful as the quote unquote real memories he has from that experience from that time. So I think those are all we're meant to think, I think, as an audience, that they're all equally as important and equally truthful. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't necessarily mean, mean to hire archives, though. I just yeah. think there have to be different forms of meaning making in that, you know, there is, there is, there are, there are some, there are some moments in this film that wrestle with dreams and what dreams mean, and some mm. moments that seem much more interested in memory, and, and it does make a distinction between those, in, I think, in the visual register, and we make a distinction by having two words describe two different mm. things, right? One, one is, both are forms of meaning making, mm. but they are different forms of meaning making, and we don't have to... We yeah, yeah I mean, because... I mean, you get lines in the. There are lines about I wanted to soldiers talking about that they wanted to forget mm. at the same time as Foreman himself is trying to get a kind of quote unquote full picture, and so there are the, the char different characters of the film offer different have different memories and together there's a full picture, but each individual character has forgotten some bits and and there are claims to truth in other bits and and there are and I wonder whether there's something yet in the way that the film certainly there, it animates posters and it an animates. Um, uh, simulates time-lapse footage, which I think is interesting when the guy's playing the guitar on the beach, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's, he's, he's using his gun to play the guitar, and then you have like a time-lapse. Um, so it's, it is about the kind of consumption of information and how information is communicated to us, and then ultimately how we then end up forgetting certain things. And so, But I think the memory and dreams bit is replicated. And some people are trying to dream of what happened and remember, and other people are trying to forget. But it's also about the importance of forgetting. And yes. how forgetting itself is meaningful. So if, the, if you think mm. about the film as being, and this is actually one of the reasons, we can talk about this later, maybe it's, the film's received a lot of criticism for this, oh, right. but it's about the post-traumatic stress disorder of Ari Folman, of the other people who um, you know fought in the Israeli Defence Forces. And so you may know more about this than I do, but how if you think about how um, memory and forgetting and PTSD has been written about, by you know, scholars such as Kathy Carruth and the importance of these gaps and then these hallucinations that come back in to fill the gaps that are repeated and kind of unprocessable. Yeah. Um, so it, for me, it's a film that is as much, it's more about memory and forgetting than mm. it is about history or that, you know, that event in historical time because as the film has been criticised for, it tells the story from the perspective of you know, from a very particular perspective, mm. um, and sort of... Not uh, the characters that the film ends with. Not the like. characters that the yeah. film ends with, and has been accused of sort of trying, of working to absolve the guilt of Folman and other young men who fought in the IDF, and oh. um, sort of the role they played mm. in it. Um, so does that raise the question about animation? Is one well suited to that sort of elliptical way that memory and mm. dreams work, of course? Yeah. Um, but broadly, that for, it seems to me that the film is criticised on the basis of 
that it was that kind of, as you say, absolving, but animation is a cathartic medium where he can just, oh, yeah. you know, like, ah, so it's fine now, and that's yeah. that's that, and he's rinsed away. Or I, I don't know, is that is that where the arguments lie? Yeah, I think so, and I think that's sort of how I initially read the film, was is this kind of mm. a, a cathartic process. I mean, I think that's how he sets the film up at the mm. beginning, is he's going on this journey, as you s- suggested, and it, it is this kind of cathartic process that, and I think that's signalled by the end of the film and that very short live action sequence, archival footage sequence at the end of the film, that he's got resolution, he's got closure. Um, yeah, well, I think we have lots to say about I've that. Got, well, yeah. I've, I don't know what I've got to say about that, but I've got lots to say. But I think I think that the only final thing is the only role of fantasy that I, we haven't perhaps articulated mm-hmm. is the role of fantasy as, an, as a mask right. behind the real, right? So actually mm-hmm. what a lot of this is also doing is this idea that we use fantasy to, to avoid uh, right. the, 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 tra- the traumatic yeah. truth. Of yeah. it, and and which so is animation. Which, if animation is a fantastic medium, then yes. does animation become? So I had a question about well, whether it dilutes or exaggerates. So are we saying that the animation is part of that masking? Well, to do it in animation I wonder, is to. I wonder if the ending seems to set us up to almost think that right. In that, in that, the mm. ending sort of has this final moment of clarity for the protagonist that involves live action and it seems to be implying to me at least that there's been some role of animation as a as a concealment or a mask and there's a line in it about like a screen and and watching uh, uh, observing the war like you were watching it through a camera and then yeah. suddenly the camera goes away and oh, i think yeah. he seems to be implying that's what happens at the end to the protagonist and supposedly to us yeah yeah i mean it's interesting i mean so i show this film to students a lot mm. um and it has a, obviously a very strong effect on them, but we talk a lot about that last segment and whether it in some way undermines the yeah. hour and a half of animation that came before, that you don't sort of realise that the importance of all this until you get that archival footage at the end. I don't know. I mean, I think narratively, that archival footage works as closure, right? He's regained his memory. He understands the significance of his role in that, you know, in the massacre of the camps. And he's sort of like, he's solved the riddle of his dream sequence, yeah. his repeated dream sequence. Because it's that that live action material, that archival material is deeply connected to the final, it happens at the end of the final time you see that dream sequence played through. And you're allowed to see that dream sequence play all the way through, all the way out. And you kind of understand, you know, you sort of, you get a, I think a camera turning around onto him and you understand how all these elements of that dream sequence connect to each other. So it is narratively this moment of resolution, but aesthetically there is that question of how does it relate to the animation? And so a lot my students often say, well, that's what made them realise it was real. Before then they didn't they didn't know like how much of the film was real, how much of this was you know really happened, and then that kind of brought it all home to them. So it has this kind of like a Paxis punch at the end of the film of like, look, this is really real. Um, but if the, I suppose, yeah, I suppose that if the film is making that fluidity between different time periods or different memories and reality and doing mm-hmm. it through these, is it also suggesting that there's no difference between the two? That's what I mean. That's why I've written about the film. That, it, that it's it's so smooth in the way yeah. that you have the final um, kind of bit of animated footage, which has a lens flare, which yeah. is the again a little nod to mm. indexical lens-based media mm. and so forth. And then we we seem to move quite smoothly into the live-action footage in a way that suggests that there's no seam at all. But Alex is looking at me in a way that suggests that I'm well, wrong. Well, I don't. Uh, well, you're, you're, you're often wrong. Chris, well, yes, but um, no, I am. Um, I, I don't find I don't find that moment smooth as a, yeah, just as yeah, a, yeah. a viewer. I find that. Ju- like, 
like I wasn't you know it's a jarring shocking moment um, mm. that sort of um, brings you out of it and and and, um, and, and I don't know what it's saying about the role of animation up until that point so um, what I've said is that I don't think that ending would have anywhere near as much impact if you'd had the hour and a half of, if you hadn't had the hour and a half of animation before right so that end sequence is less than a minute and a half mm-hmm. only makes sense in the context of that animation sure. yeah if, it, if you could show it by itself it would have a completely different meaning so I think that it doesn't negate the animation that's gone before at all but I think it works closely in conjunction with it to help us Mm. understand the significance of the animation perhaps also it still works to make that parity between the animation and quote-unquote reality so that in the sequence briefly before that you've heard the war correspondent talking about going into the camps yeah he's Mm -hmm. he's one of the first people who goes in with his camera and he sees this the black the girl with the black curly hair. Yeah. And he stops because she looks a lot like his daughter. Yeah. So it really brings it home to him. And you see an animated reconstruction of the little girl with her hair sticking out of the rubble. Um, and then you see that again in live action in the live ac- in the archival footage at the end, right? So it's sort of it's in a way for me that is sort of um, authentic not authenticating, but sort of bolstering the significance and the meaning of the animation that we saw before. It's kind of it's sort of connecting them together and making a parity between the two. Mm. Um, by it's, it sort of reconstructs it almost from exactly the same angle. I'm just trying to think of your talk out or your the stuff that you said previously about obviously animation um, fantasy as an impulse and and a, and a way to think about fantasy not in generic terms but as an impulse that is available to lots of different films. Mm. Um, and we we've talked about you know Greece, the ending yeah. of Greece where it's all pretty much realistic and then the car flies away. And you're like, oh, okay, so fantasy is an impulse. It's a thing that can happen in ostensibly live action. This is like the reverse of that. Because it's it's like fantasy, 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 or if we take fantasy and animation to be close, closely overlaps, as we we tend to do, um, this is the opposite effect, that reality is an impulse in the film. Yeah, I like that. Articulated through... Sort of real bullet at the end, like real in the sort of, you know, capital R sense of the word. So fantasy doesn't... Isn't the only thing that need be an an impulse realist is a sort of impetus or realism as an impulse in this movie? I guess... I think the only thing I I think perhaps... That I think might be a bit of a shame in that, and this is probably just coming from my own research bias, is that I I spend a lot of time writing about how fantasy... uh, How... The role fantasy plays in our own well-being and the, mm. our own um, mm. sense of reality and trying to get away from a sort of sort of uh, Freudian notion that our fantasies are the things that haunt us and if only we can be expunged of our fantasies we will arrive closer at an understanding of reality and and there's this sort of very you know within fantasy circles famous uh, Freudian discussion of the Fort Dar game which is this mm. kid dropping uh, you know um, going basically playing peekaboo um, and and basically enacting a trauma through fantasy and again and again and again until the trauma has worked its way through and then they can see reality fully. And th- it's full of this kind of discourse of let's get rid of our fantasy so we can see reality better. And I wonder if the film doesn't sort of at least implicitly suggest that we reach a point of resolution at the end because the concealment that animation provides, that fantasy provides, um, is now lifted from the protagonist's eyes, so mm. we're at a moment of better reality, of more of of truth, um, and that's coupled with this with this influx of live action, mm. which I think does you know, mm. w- from my perspective, seems to suggest that fantasy can't help us 
be real and also seems to suggest that animation uh, helps us be real by concealing it for a long time and then sort of revealing it at the end. Um, Pay no attention to the medium behind the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I think there is it's that it's that line that, he, that, that that said in it about um, seeing a thing through a camera and then the camera drops away. And I feel like that's what it's trying to get us to do is at the end the camera drops away. Of course it doesn't, but, um, but animation drops away. But that last sequence doesn't tell us the story of the film. No. Because that's not what the film is about, really. The film is, you know, the film is about him coming to terms with the role he played in the Chabrin Shatila camp massacre. But it's also the film is really about that journey, right? And it's about the importance of those three different elements of fantasy, of memory, of you know, reality or real, mm-hmm. sort of current day exchanges in coming to terms with them, that memory. So I suppose. A lot of it, it depends on what you think the film is about. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So if you think the film is about that moment in history, then, yeah, I would agree with you that it's about, you know, the animation, kind of the curtain falling away. But if we think about the film as being about something else, then, no, I don't, I don't think... I think, you know, the animation, the status of animation remains important. Because... You could, because you couldn't make a film about the importance of forgetting memory, fantasy, you know, uh, hallucination without using animation. No, that's true. That's true. I just wonder if it doesn't therefore say that you know these these dreams, these memories, these hallucinations ultimately obscure rather than help reveal. And I'm very much of a mindset that says that these things help us to yeah. grapple with reality rather than hinder us. From and doing I think that's so. what the film is saying. Okay, I think it is until yeah. those last yeah. ninety seconds. Yeah. Um, and then I'm not sure if that's what it's saying. And it's such an impactful ninety seconds that one can't help. It feels both unfair um, and sort of necessary to. Yeah. Place the two in dialogue because it's such a sort of yeah because it places them in dialogue in other ways by it places live oh, this idea of animation's proximity to live action it does it through those those moments that mm. you don't notice mm. the camera work in some cases is classical but then isn't in others or mm. the, the the lens flare and and then its proximity to live action is is fully revealed at the end I I, I mean I I've seen, I to me in a way that the way the other way to read that read that final sequence well there are several other ways one is uh, one way to read it is to say, look, I could have shown you this the whole way through the film, but that would not have told you the story that I want to tell you in this film. Mm. That's one way to read it, I think, which, which sort of rehabilitates the animation. And another way is, I think there was some kind of ethical obligation and feeling of duty on, you know, m- and maybe sort of a pre-acknowledgement of the criticism the film was going to yeah. receive about the perspective and the story it tells by, you know, giving it over to the sort of... Um, to those people and to that that story at the end, I think. Because if the film is about recollection and being unable to recall, then the film is then suggesting there are two ways to recall. Mm. One is because it's it's you know it's live action footage, but that is a way of recording something, mm. and the same way animation is a way of recording. When he meets the psychologist or has that discussion with the psychologist, and they talk about disassociative events. Mm. I got, you know, animation's role is one to dilute the history and make it more palatable, to exaggerate it by virtue of the fact we are seeing blood mm. done in ostensibly uh, children's medium. Mm. We, we, uh, and then the third is, is, seems to be your point, Alex, about it disassociates us from it ever so slightly. So there's something, yeah, I, I, it would be interesting to pay more attention, and I, and I wish I'd done so, to the, the actual conversations that he has. Because the, the dialogue is very very charged in that sense, talking about, yeah, um, memory and trauma and a line, so what you can't remember, mm. um, and the failure of memory and stuff. Mm. And so I'm wondering whether the ways of, because we see news, we see 
this animated simulation of live action footage on a television screen. We see the simulation of time-lapse footage, um, lens flare, uh, posters, different media, and then at the very end you have another another way of remembering. So I'm, yeah, I see your point about it being jarring, but I suppose the other way is that look how equal they are. It's the, it's the Who Framed Roger Rabbit thing. Yeah. The live action walking, or the animation walking to the live action. Go look, they share the same world, and yet mm. the whole film's about how they're totally different things. Mm. And I wonder whether that this film is where, which one's Roger Rabbit and which one's Eddie Valiant. Yeah, and I think in a way that final sequence just points to the inadequacy of live action. Ah, interesting. Rather than reclaiming it as the, the real way to show it. I mean, I think that's a, you can yeah. make that argument, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, you know, that, you know, he would have seen that footage presumably Ari Folman before, but it didn't help him understand what role he played in that massacre. Mm. So he needed to go through this animated journey to figure out you know, what role he played. Um, and so that live action footage is never enough on its own. And, and by going through the process, then it becomes meaningful, that final moment. Yeah, yeah I like that reading. I'm, I'm going to try and make that what I believe, but I certainly prefer it. On, um, that, on that last... <laughs> on that last um, I guess the final sequence before we wrap things up, we have yeah. the d dissolve to live action footage. So my first point, my first note was, ah, okay, so is the animation that can't do it justice, but only live action can. And then I thought, ah, but it's interesting, the live action footage doesn't have subtitles. Mm -hmm. And the animated footage does. And I was like, I don't know what that okay. means. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but there's, it might mean something or it might mean nothing. But I thought that's really interesting because there's no way of us to understand what's going on. It really feels like a, you know like a, a, a punch, there's something there that we don't understand what these people are saying. We get a good idea, I mean, but yeah, we it's do, not we subtitled. Do it, yeah. um, and then we obviously get the freeze, the film ends on a freeze frame. Mm. And, then it, and then the music just, because the music is quite consistent in the film mm. and, and the, the um, use of, you know, Enola Gay, how amazing. Mm. But then you just get beats, dum, dum, and the screen goes to black and suddenly you're like, whoa, this is... Mm. This is there now, and mm. so I, I, I really didn't know what to make sense. So I'm really, I'm, it's really interesting to, to, that we had different readings of the end because I, mm. I kind of don't know what to, what to make of it really. Yeah, well, that's all I've got to say well, about that. I think <laughs> on the, that, on, on I that don't know what to we'll, make we'll about climb it. back out of the, of the film. Um, so Bella, should we do more documentaries, or is this a particular? instance of a documentary that's interested in things that we are interested in on this podcast. No, you, you could do lots more documentaries, okay. animated documentaries. I think there might even be a blog post on your blog. A very fine one, I believe. About yeah. the intersection of animation, documentary <laughs> yes. and fantasy. Absolutely. Um, and it definitely, you know, in, for me, your, your research and your fantasy animation uh, blog has made me think about animated documentary from a different perspective. Um, and I remember asking you guys the question a long time ago when I first encountered your research of like, where does this leave? You know, if, yeah. you know, if fantasy implies animation, animation implies, implies fantasy, where does that leave animated documentary? So I think it's a really interesting way of articulating sort of some really prescient questions about animated documentary and vice yeah. versa. And there are plenty of animated documentaries that engage or deal with this world of the subjective, of memory, of the importance of fantasy all the things we've been talking about for you know your own understanding of yourself and the world so right and, and you your point about um chicago 10 mm. and how that we haven't really talked about voice like voice performance in, yeah. in walter bashir but um it seems to be that chicago 10 is another animated documentary but it uses star voices and whether that upsets and i suppose that gets gets us into broader questions that the people that have written about the biopic i guess have also interrogated the, the creative yeah. treatment of 
Freddie Mercury's life or whatever it might be, that there is something, the voice in these films feel very authentic. Right, which um, they are for the most part. A couple yeah. of them are re-recorded. But so my question about this film is often, so I, I watch it um, with the subtitles in the original language. Yeah. But you can get a version that's dubbed in English. Right. So what does that then mean? Because then you've got animate, you've got dubbed audio and you've got animated visuals. Yeah. And so you've lost that quote-unquote indexical link with reality, which an animated documentary often is through the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the recorded voices. You should edit a book on that. Through, <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, then, that, then that gives more emphasis, if you watch the dubbed version, that mm. gives more emphasis presumably to the, to the live action footage at the end in that version. I don't know. that's I mean, a moment, that, yeah. that wouldn't be dubbed. That would be a powerful people speaking yeah. in their own voices, if you like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although, you know, we, I suppose maybe there is that, you know, that moment at the end where we just get to hear the people speaking in their own voices. But yeah. why is that not subtitled? I've never thought about that question before. Why is that not subtitled? It's a really interesting question. I think it has a lot to do with what, whose story this film privileges. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, I have strong opinions on dubbing and subtitles, so I, I, I defer to a future A future blog post, perhaps. perhaps. But, it, but it does mean that we, we might, we, that, that, that we might get to do walk, walking with dinosaurs sometimes. Oh, please. Yeah, we'll Can, I come back. Back? Can I come back from yeah, that? Absolutely. There's so really much to say about animated dinosaurs. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. Um, <laughs> before we say goodbye, um, we normally ask people where they can find you. So can, can people find you online? Can they find you... Um, yeah. You know, come to um, your house. Maybe, just, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe rather than give out your address, maybe Please just... don't come to my house. Yeah. Um, I am on Twitter irregularly at, at Bella Honus Row. Um, I have a University of Surrey webpage. I have a blog on animated oh, yes, documentary blog, yeah, that yeah. I have not updated for years, but it forms a kind of sort of archive, if you like, of yeah. a certain moment, a snapshot of animated documentary research. Um, which I've sort of pretty much stopped updating now, but it has some resources Great. and information there. And if people are really interested about this topic and they wanted to get your book, that's available still? People Animated can... Documentary yeah. is available on all good online booksellers at a very reasonable price for paperback. And what's interesting about it is the previous podcast, we've talked about the role of skeletons in animation and the front cover of your book. It has a skeleton from Jonathan Hodgson's film, Feeling My Way. There we go. Nice little synergy there between fantasy yeah. slash animation slash skeletons. Yeah. Well, Bella, thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank and talking to us me. about Waltz with Bashir. Um, we are Fantasy Animation, fantasy-animation.org. You can find us on Twitter at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, as well as on Facebook. Um, and uh, we look forward to taking part in the conversations that this uh, podcast provides. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.